Some pretty difficult jobs out there have been throughout history, and I have some that I want to share with you uh, this morning. See if you would like to, if these were around today, if you'd like to apply for any of these jobs. One is, these are the 10 most disgusting jobs in history, Uh, just a few of them, not all 10, but a few of my favorites. Uh, The first is a leech collector. So if you are in need of money in the Middle Ages, uh, bleeding was a common practice, medical practice, Uh, but in order to do that, they would use leeches, and in order to use leeches, leeches had to be collected. So if you were a leech collector, what you would do is you would uh, wade out into water with bare legs, allow the leeches to attach to your legs, then you would remove them and you would take them and sell them to a barber, surgeon, town doctor, um, whatever the medical professional of the day was. So maybe that's a job that might interest in you, have interested you. Another one, a violin string maker. Sounds relatively simple, right? Well, prior to the 17th century, uh, violins only primarily had three strings and in order to make strings strong enough to play low notes, they would use most of the time would twist strands of sheep innards together in order to make those strings. So uh, string makers would butcher sheep. They would spend painstaking hours trimming away fat tissue, blood vessels, muscle, and then they, the strings would then be soaked in a solution constantly monitored and then dried and twisted into strings. So maybe that that might interest you. No? Okay, well, here's another one. You could be a rat catcher, and that's exactly what you think. You know, we call the the pest control guy now. Well, in the the 19th century, industrialization was taking off in some of these populated areas. As you can imagine, garbage would build up, waste was a problem, and so along with all that would be rats. And so they would call the rat catcher. And what the rat catcher would do, no fancy traps or anything like that, he would take and rub oils of aniseed and thyme into his hands and his clothing in order to attract the rats, and he would just catch them with his bare hands and take them away. So maybe you'd like that job. Here's another one. A bone grubber. You could be a bone grubber. In Victorian cities, uh, a vast scavenging economy, uh, the, it was, and a bone grubber fell somewhere in the middle of that. All right, so the bone grubber, these guys would scavenge rotting bones from butchers, garbage piles, and stockyards and sell them to dealers. Why would they do that? Well, some of these bones would be used to make toothbrush handles if you needed a toothbrush. Uh, children's teething rings, uh, personal items that vary. I mean, things that we wouldn't think of, but nonetheless were valuable then. Uh, what couldn't be sold were boiled down for making soap. So you could have bone soap if you wanted that. Now, just a few other current disgusting jobs. I stress the word current there, okay? Those were old, ancient Today, if you want a job, you can become a maggot farmer, you can be a slaughterhouse worker, and possibly my favorite is a whale snot collector. So there's some disgusting jobs. I would dare to say those are difficult jobs, wouldn't you agree? Would be difficult to stomach, uh, at least to begin with. And there are difficult jobs out there, and I think we could all agree that Moses had one of those jobs, right? 
His was a difficult job, and we've walked on this journey with him following his journey of faith. His job may be not disgusting necessarily uh, like those. Maybe at times it was. I'm sure it was, but difficult nonetheless. He was called to lead a rebellious, self-centered, stiff-necked, as described by God, people through a desert to the promised land. And in order to do this, Moses needed to be very close to God. He needed a close, personal, intimate relationship with God in order to be able to accomplish his job. Again, this journey of faith, we've seen Moses go on, and we're not quite done yet, but we look at today, and we see he continues in this journey and and continues to learn valuable lessons, as do the people of the nation of Israel. And in this study, one of our purpose, our primary purpose in studying the life of Moses is to learn, experience God's spiritual principles, his best so that we can live a spiritual life in Christ. We can live his best and experience his best, his plan for us and follow his, his will for us. And we pick up today in chapter 33. Moses has received the Ten Commandments. He uh, was on the mountain for 40 days. The Israelites, he was receiving instructions about the tabernacle. The Israelites get impatient. They think something's happened to God. Last week we looked at how they rebelled against God. They asked Aaron to um, build them a God, and Aaron builds the golden calf. They sin greatly against God. They suffer Uh, mightily. They suffer because of their sin. God preserves them, but many are punished for that. Many lose their lives as a result of that sin. And so Moses comes down. He sees what they're doing. He throws down the the tablets of the Ten Commandments. He crushes them into powder. And that, that is a symbol of Israel's breaking of the covenant with God that they, that they had made with God. Not God breaking the covenant, but Israel making the covenant. So God is angry with the people. And as a result of his anger, we see in chapter 33, verses 1 through 3, God is going to lead them to the promised land, but in these verses, he refuses to go into the promised land, or he says that he refuses to go into the promised land. Let's look at these verses together, beginning in in verse 1 of chapter 33 of Exodus. The Lord spoke to Moses, go, leave here, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt to the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give give it to your offspring. I will send an angel ahead of you and will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might destroy you along the way. Um, Anybody that plans to travel next week, you may say something similar to your kids. If I go with you, I may kill you before we get there, right? You may drive me crazy. Well, that's, that's kind of what God is saying. You guys are so stubborn. You've disobeyed. I'm not going with you because if I do, I may destroy you along the way. Again, we are going to see Moses plead with God and God relents. And just like last week, it appears that God is changing his mind, but we know that's not possible because God's perfect. If he changed his mind, that would mean he was wrong. That's not what's happening here. We are seeing, in one part, we are seeing God described in human terms so that we can relate to him and better understand what's going on here. And also, these are narrative passages of scriptures. These are stories handed down. And and in narrative passages of scriptures, we see 
God being described in human terms. And, and also we have to be very careful in drawing theology from narrative passages of Scripture. Because the primary purpose here in this passage, it's not about God changing his mind or not. It's about how desperately Moses and the people need God's presence in order to enter the promised land. Not just to get to it, but to enter. And it's about their dependence upon him. This is more about Moses recognizing his dependence dependence on God and the nation recognizing their dependence dependence on God. This isn't about God changing his mind. He does it just like last week. It's, it's Moses fulfilling God's plan and his recognition of his need. He's testing Moses. He's testing the nation of Israel and we need to look at it as such. It is their need for him. It is their dependence upon him. And this morning, we're going to learn some valuable lessons about the importance of God's presence in the form, specifically in the form of his glory in our lives. What's the first lesson? Well, number one, we should be desperate for God's glory. In our lives, just Moses knew he was desperate for God's presence. And he's desperate, as we'll see, for his glory. He experiences it, and he becomes desperate for it. We, too, need to be desperate for God's glory. Moses had a huge responsibility. He had been called by God to lead this nation into the promised land, the land of Canaan. This is a huge responsibility that God has called him to. And we've seen the ups and downs along the way. This wasn't an easy assignment, to say the least. I mean, you say a lot of things about it. I think we can all agree that it was not an easy assignment. His leadership had been called into question frequently. His orders were disobeyed as frequently or more frequently than they were obeyed. Time and time again, he experiences that frustration. But Moses himself had to obey God, and he had to obey God's will for his life. He had to accept it. It wasn't dependent upon whether or not the Israelites obeyed. He had to make a decision to obey and to accept God's will. You know, our call, yours and mine, whatever that specific plan God has for you, and then corporately as a church, it may be different than Moses, but we have to settle the same issue in our lives, don't we? We have to decide, are we going to obey God? Are we going to follow his plan for our lives or not? I mean, are we willing to follow him? Are we willing to accept his plan? for our lives. God calls us and he takes care of us. He does it day by day by day, just like we see with Moses. And there's a lot he tells Moses about what's going to happen, but there's a lot he has to experience day by day in the presence of God and following him. And that's true for us. We have to face the fact that we have a responsibility, all of us, we have a responsibility to obey God. I can't obey for you. You can't obey for me. I have to make a decision, a personal commitment to obey God. In chapter 32, the people had rebelled against God. The result, the Lord wanted to destroy them at worst and at best now deny them his presence in the promised land. He promises to send an angel to lead them, but he would not go with them. Uh, according uh, According to these verses. And then again in verse 3. Uh, go up to the land where it states this, flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people, otherwise I might destroy you. Now, think about how this makes Moses feel, okay? He's already prayed, Lord, don't destroy him. 
He's interceded for them. He's fulfilling his responsibility as their mediator. So think about how this makes them feel, him feel. He's doing all he can to lead these people. He's doing the best he can to lead these people who continue to be stubborn, who continue to disobey, who continue to doubt him, who continue to doubt God. He's doing the best he can, and he knows he needs God. And here God is saying, I'm not going to go with you, Moses. I'll lead you to it. I'm not going with you. So how do you think Moses? He, you know, I, Moses hasn't done anything wrong at this point. I mean, he, he's got his history, yes, of, of handling situations sometimes well, a lot of times not so well. But in this moment, he's being obedient. He's pleading with the Lord. He's going to the Lord, interceding on behalf of the people because that's what he's supposed to do. And God is saying, I'm not going with you. Now, I, I don't know about you, but if I'm Moses, I'm pretty tempted to just throw in the towel and quit at this point. Aren't you? I mean, over and over and over again, obstacle after obstacle after obstacle, difficulty, people that don't want to follow God, that don't want to follow him, he... He had to be tempted to quit, to just give up. But give him credit and, and give the people credit here too, okay? They realize the seriousness of what had happened and they mourn. They take off jewelry, which is a sign of repentance. So they're repenting. They have a desire to turn away from what they had just done and turn back to God. They knew they needed God's presence to get into the promised land. I mean, even their building of the calf they recognized, they recognized they needed divine assistance in getting there. They were misguided. They were blending Egyptian worship with worship of God. Um, so when they, they, they recognize, especially now, in repentance and humility, they recognize they need God. So give them credit for that. And we all have experienced those times where circumstances... A lot recently, I'm sure, difficulties, trials leave us feeling discouraged, right? I mean, it's easy to get discouraged. You know, whatever happens in life, we get, we get discouraged. And, 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 and getting discouraged is not a sin, but responding to discouragement incorrectly can become a sin. You know, if you wallow in that, if you allow that to, to cause you to give up, and, and to stop trying to serve God, to, to stop trying to move forward and accomplishing his purpose for you. If you allow that to get discouragement to get you to a place where you no longer want to spend time with God or worship him, or you, you're no longer thankful for what he has done and, and what he is and go, is going to do in the, in the present and the future. I mean, just, you know, wallowing in discouragement, responding inappropriately can become a sin. And discouragement is one of Satan's greatest weapons because if he can cause you to get discouraged to the point to where you quit trying, he doesn't have to waste any more energy on you. He doesn't have to defeat you because you will defeat yourself. It's one of his greatest weapons. Allowing, you know, feeling discouragement is not a sin. Wallowing in discouragement, responding inappropriately can become a sin. So when I get discouraged, what do we need to do? What do I need to do? Well, I need to remind myself that... The Lord knows my need, and he's always there to encourage me and to support me. I need to go back to him. I need to go back to the word, the promises of Scripture, the reality of who he is, his character. In Hebrews 13, 5, he assures us, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus himself said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. 
He will always be here. And even in those moments where we don't feel him in his presence, he is here. So we need to focus on that, and we need to follow Moses' example. We need to be desperate. I need to be desperate for God's presence in my life, especially when I'm feeling discouraged, right? I need to be desperate. I need to run to him, not away from him. Desperate for his presence. We should always be, shouldn't we? And every day we should be desperate for his presence, but it's in those moments of discouragement where we realize it that much more, how desperately we need him. And in verses 7 through 14, Moses goes outside to the camp. He goes outside to a tent, not the tabernacle. It hasn't been built yet, but he goes out to a tent to meet with God. Why did he do this? He knew he needed to get away and he needed to get along with God. He needed to be along with him. He knew he needed. He's desperate for God's presence. And even the thought of God not, not being with him drove him toward God. You know, he, he knew how badly he needed God. And, and how, how desperately Israel, Israel needed God in order to get to the promised land. You know, personally, Moses needed to experience a deeper uh, uh, relationship with God in a, in a more profound way. He, he knew that the nation of Israel could not meet that need. He knew that no one in his family could meet that need. He knew that only God could meet that need in his life, that, that relational need, uh, that, that provision. He knew he needed God, and, and nothing else was going to meet that need, so he goes to the only place he can. He goes into the presence of God. He knows the only cure for his discouragement, for his disillusionment, was a fresh glimpse a fresh experience of God's presence, a reminder, a, a greater intimacy with God. That's, that was the only cure for his discouragement. And Moses mentioned some areas where he wants to know God better, and four areas that you and I need to look at uh, where we can know God better. First was his ways. We can know God better through his ways. Verse 13, now if I have indeed found favor in your sight, Moses says, please teach me your ways. You know, God's plan, his will, his way of doing things, his instructions. Moses wants to better understand the way God operates so that he can better serve God. He wants to know how God operates. He also wants to know his person. In order to know God better, to be closer to him, you need to know him. His person. The second part of verse 13, and I know I will know you and find favor in your sight. Now consider this nation as your people. I will know you personally. Moses wants to better understand the person of God so he can enjoy a deeper fellowship with him. I mean, how how do you grow in your relationship with anybody? We got to get to know them, right? You got to spend time with them and get to know who they are. That's what he's wanting to do here. He wants to know God more. He wants to know more about him. And he wants a better understanding of God's presence, a greater experience, a, more, a, clo- a closer relationship. Verse 15, if your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, don't make us go up from here. I don't want to go anywhere without you, God. I would rather not go to the promised land at all than to go without you. I want your presence in my life. Moses wants a clear manifestation of God's presence so that he can better follow God. This is Moses begging, begging for God's presence and his guidance. And then he wants to know his glory. 
He wants to know God's glory. Verse 18, Moses said, please let me see your glory. Moses wants to see the glory of God so that he will be moved to a deeper relationship in his worship life. He's desperate for the glory of God, as we all should be. We all should be desperate for God's glory. Also, we need to be prepared for the glory of God. We need to be prepared. Desperate, we seek it, and then when God says, okay, I'm going to show you my glory, we need to be prepared for it. And you know, In addition to agreeing to going with the Israelites in the promised land, in verses 19 and 20, God tells Moses, Moses, I will give you a glimpse, just a small glimpse of my glory. Look at verse 19. He said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he answered, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Now, why did God agree to do this? Well, we get the answer in verse 17. The Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses has found favor or grace in the King James Version. I mean, it's God's grace. But Moses, through his obedience, and God knows his heart, his desire to obey God, he has found favor with God. And Moses, you know, again, though, it's grace, right? Don't misunderstand there. Moses didn't do, it wasn't his obedience that caused God to show him favor. God just, I mean, God knew his, his heart. He had been faith. Moses had certainly been faithful, and that pleased God. But the only reason... God showed Moses his glory was out of grace. I mean, it was just God chose to do it. It was out of his kindness. There was nothing he did to earn this experience. It was just that God chose to show him grace. And any time, any time we experience a movement of God in our lives or in the life of this church or any church, any revival at all, it is because of God's grace. It is because he chooses to do so. He chooses to reveal himself and his glory. It is totally his prerogative. He chooses to do it. Now, just like Moses, we are promised that if we put ourselves in a position, in the right position, we can expect God to show up. And we read about that in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, again, to the nation of Israel. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. So what we can do to make sure we're prepared in a position to experience the glory of God is be faithful. If we are in sin, we turn from that sin, we repent. We ask for forgiveness and turn away from it, not to re- return. All right? We, we are faithful in obeying him and following his commands and serving him. So through faithfulness, we put ourselves, it's still God's prerogative as to whether or not he does it, but he promises if we are faithful, if we are repentant, that he will honor that. We are in a position to be able to experience his glory. Moses was faithful, so he was in that position in a position to experience God moving his life in a powerful way, in a position to experience the glory of God. Moses' faithfulness put him in a position to experience God's glory. We also need to be in the right place. We need to be in position through faithfulness, through obedience to experience his glory. Now, you may be asking, where is the right place? Well, the right place is wherever God tells you to be. 
Again, it's about obedience. It's where he tells you to be. Look at verses 21 through 23. The Lord said, here is a place near me. Said to Moses, you are to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed. And then when I have passed, I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. So Moses, God tells Moses there's a place behind him, or a place by him, rather, that he will, he will put him. He says, go stand here, and I will put you in the crevice of the rock. And then I will allow my glory to pass by me, and you can see the back of my glory, because you can't handle all of it. And I don't think it's a stretch here to draw a parallel between uh, this and Jesus, that the only place you and I can experience the glory of God is through in and through Jesus Christ. I mean, he is the rock. He is our rock. And so if we want to experience God's glory, yes, obedience, but that begins with following, saying yes to Jesus. We can't experience the glory of God unless we are in Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 10, 4, Paul said, he said, and, and all drank, the same spiritual drink, from, for they drank from the spiritual rock that f- followed them, and that rock was Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. If we want to see the Father, then we have to be in the Son. I mean, look at what the Bible says about Jesus. First, in his own words, John 14, 9, Jesus said, Have I been among you all this time without your knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? How do we see the Father? Well, we have to be in the Son. It's through Him. And then John said in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, He has revealed Him. I mean, if we want to see the Father, you've got to see the Son. It's only in Christ to experience the glory of God. Then the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1.3, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact represent our exact expression of his nature sustaining all things by his powerful word after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high he is the radiance he is the replication he is god's glory if we want to experience god's glory it has to be in christ we have to abide in christ which reminds us of our need to abide in christ as we see in john fifteen five, jesus said i am the vine you are the branches the one who remains or abides in me And I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. The closer we draw to Jesus, the more we we experience the glory of God because the closer we draw to Jesus, the closer he draws to us. James 4, 8, James assures us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. So we draw close to God, and he draws close to us. So here's the truth. True revival, true spiritual awakening cannot be found in meetings, evangelism events, singing, fellowship. True revival comes from an ever-deepening fellowship with Christ. All of those things are a part of revival, but none of those in and of themselves will bring revival if... I don't have an ever-deepening fellowship with Jesus Christ. If I want to experience God's glory in my life, I have to be in Christ. My relation, just like Moses, he knew he needed to go deeper with God. We have to go deeper with Christ. And our relationship and our knowledge 
in our imitation of him, obedience, taking on his character. If we want revival, if we want to experience the glory of God, that's what we have to do. The only way we can accomplish any of that is through prayer, studying God's word, through true discipleship, being a disciple, a student, and then discipling others. All of that, that is how God grows his people and duplicates himself. That's how we experience a deepening relationship with Christ. And if we really want revival in our lives and in the church, the first thing that we have to do is put Jesus in the center of our lives and in the center of everything that we do, our families, the church itself, everything. He, everything has to be revolved around him and his will, his plan for our lives and our relationship with him. But when we put him above everything else and in the center of everything, what we see when we get to that place, we can count on experiencing his glory. We're not earning it, but we're putting ourselves in a position to be able to experience it. And God is faithful. He's gracious that way to show us himself. And then in chapter 34 of Exodus, God did exactly what he, as he had promised Moses. Look at verse 5. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name Yahweh. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed Yahweh. Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth. Maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. He's gracious. God visited Moses. He gives him a glimpse of his glory. And, and, and pay attention to how God describes himself in verse 7. The glory of God is described in human terms. So we can understand He's described, he describes himself as compassionate or merciful. And he is. He's merciful. They, they, they deserve being wiped out, yet God shows mercy. Um, we deserve the same thing. We certainly don't deserve to experience God's glory. He's gracious, again, giving us what we don't deserve, his presence, his glory. He's slow to anger. Aren't you glad? Slow to anger. He's rich in faithful love, steadfast love. I love that word steadfast, continual. There's effort involved. It's not just an emotion. God is committed. He is faithful. His love never ends. And he shows it time and time again. Loyal love. You don't have to worry about God, a point where God stops loving you. He is love. His love is perfect. There'll never be a time where he doesn't love you. He'll discipline you, but even that's motivated by love. He's rich in truth or faithfulness. I mean, God is faithful and true. I mean, he defines truth. He forgives wrongdoing, rebellion, sin. God is forgiving. And when you put those two things together, slow to anger and forgiving together, that's a powerful thing. Instead of his wrath, we experience his grace and his mercy, his forgiveness through Jesus Christ because of what he did. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, so he's also just. So how do you avoid that? Well, through Christ, his grace, but you have to receive it. He will not leave the guilty. And we see all of that in these two chapters, three chapters, right? I mean, we see his, his grace, his mercy, but we also see his, his wrath. 
his justice. The glory of God is revealed. The Ten Commandments are rewritten. Other covenant laws are affirmed. God shows goodness and grace. Remember, it had been destroyed before, but God, he, he, he gives them another chance. It's his grace. It's his mercy. And after this experience, Moses would never be the same again. After just this small glimpse of God's glory and his grace and his mercy, all of these characteristics, Moses would never be the same again. Every now and then, you and I get a small dose, a small glimpse of the glory of God through his presence in our lives. Sometimes he comes and he, he demonstrates his, his glory to his people. So, so what do we need to do to make sure we're prepared to experience it? Well, we need to be faithful and we need to be sincere. It doesn't need to be just about going through the motions or going through the routine. There needs to be faithfulness, sincerity. Now, it's going to look a little different this year, I'm sure, but next Friday, a week from this coming Friday, is what? Black Friday. Okay, everybody wake up. It's okay. It's Sunday. I, I found this. This is pretty true, right? Because only in America, people trample each other for sales exactly one day after being thankful for what they already have. That's so true, right? I mean, we do a lot of it online, but I mean, you hear a story every year about somebody getting hurt or people fighting over Many, I've been to one Black Friday sale in my entire life that I can remember. Mandy and I went one year. We were at a Walmart in the town I grew up in. And as we were leaving, two ladies were fighting over a set of towels that were on sale. And I guarantee you, if you held them up to the light, you'd be able to see through them. They were so cheap and thin. But they were about to kill each other over those towels. Yet the day before, they were probably sitting around the table with their family, thanking the Lord for everything they had, right? I mean, now you tell me, is that real thankfulness or is that just, hey, it's turkey day. Let's say what we're thankful for so we can eat and then go watch football or whatever. It's just going through the motions. I, I think sometimes we just go through the motions and we don't really stop and give thanks for what we have and what God has blessed us with. Just going through the motions. Well, we need to ask the same thing with our relationship with God, if we really want to experience the glory of God, are we sincerely obedient, faithful, following him, seeking him through his word, through prayer, through fellowship with him, with other believers? Are we just going through the motions? Is it just routine? Even our time alone with God every day, is it just, hey, it's time to do that. When I work through this, check off my list and go on with my day. Are we sincere when a genuine movement of God takes place in our lives and in our church, we will become lost in the glory of God. But we've got to be sincere. We've got to seek Him sincerely. You know, we won't have a desire, once we experience that glory, we won't have a desire to live the same way anymore. Again, we get lost in His glory. We want more of His glory, just as Moses did. We won't live the same way anymore. He will be our focus, the center of everything that we do. We will exalt Him above all else, especially our own desires and our way of doing things. We want to obey Him and follow Him. We will want our family to experience His glory and obey Him and be changed by Him and follow Him. Our desire, we will honestly say, I want more of Him. I want more of this experience. I want more of his presence in my life. I want to obey him more. I want to experience him, his glory more. 
I want him at the center of all that I do. And like Moses, we will be changed by the glory of God, forever changed. You know, Moses was never the same, like I just said. And the reality is, no one can come face to face with the glory of God and ever be the same. Either you will run to him and become like him and become desperate for him, or you will deny him and run away from him. When you come face to face with the power of God, there's only one of two reactions. But I guarantee you, you'll never be the same. And depending on which decision you make, you'll be changed for the better or changed for the worse. I mean, there's no middle ground there. You'll never be the same. No one can come face to face with God and be the same. There will always, if you, if you experience him as a follower of Christ, if you accept him and then you experience him as a believer, then his presence, the fact that you did encounter him in that way will be evident in, not only in your face, but in everything you do. And your actions, your service, that's what James, the book of James, uh, works that go along with faith is all about. If I truly have faith, my life will be different. And my faith will be evident in what I do and what I say and how I serve others. You think about it. Biblical examples, after Jacob wrestled with God at, at Peniel in, in Genesis 32, he had a limp to show for it. <laughs> I mean, it was evidence of his encounter with God. You see, Saul of Tarsus, after he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he was, boy, he was changed forever. He even got a new name to show for it. The disciples, because of their faithfulness and because of what they experienced, at the resurrected Christ, they were changed forever. They were marked men for the rest of their lives, but it didn't faze them. They served God faithfully. Their lives were changed forever. They were never the same. You know, there were some definite changes in Moses, too. We see these changes. And if we truly have an encounter with God, we'll experience some of these same changes. For one thing, he was, he was humble. His experience with God produced humility in his life. Look at verse 8. Moses immediately bowed down to the ground and he worshiped. What was his immediate response? Humility. He worshiped God. Face to the ground. When we see the Lord as he is, when we experience his glory, we cannot help but to see ourselves as we really are. Just like Isaiah, woe is me. We are acutely aware of our imperfections and our sin in light of the holiness, the glory of God. You know, the, the, the sad truth is, is a lot of times we have a tendency to think a little too much of ourselves. I'm not talking about a defeatist attitude, low self-esteem, but a lot of times we get this idea that we're a little bit holier than we really are. Uh, maybe we think we've arrived spiritually, but the reality is a good glimpse of God's glory will fix that. It'll bring you to your knees because no matter how good you are, seeing him as he is highlights the sinfulness that still exists in your life. And when we become humble, we're ready for the Lord to use us for his glory. That's step number one. We are humbled and then we're ready. But it also, humility also, it leads to unity with God, but unity in the body of Christ. You know, a lot of churches that, that don't have unity, what they need is the glory of God. They need to experience the glory of God because that will humble them and produce unity. You know, I've, I've witnessed as a pastor some silly arguments, discussions in churches, 
And I found an article not too long ago that, that highlighted some of those. And we're going to laugh at these because it's either laugh or cry. Hopefully we won't repeat any of these, but you can, you can kind of follow along with me. There was actually, Luke, you'll like this, an, an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. I think you're okay. All right. Um, but can you imagine? All right. A fight over whether or not to build a children's playground. Get this build a children's playground, or use that property for a cemetery. It wasn't a cemetery yet, but they were having an argument over whether or not to do that. There was a church dispute over whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. Don't worry, ladies, that is included in the renovation plans. Restroom dividers. Don't have to worry about that. There was a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase. Black or brown, two, three, or four drawer. I don't care. <laughs> as long as I can put files in it, right? This is a good one. There was a dispute, and I've heard similar ones, because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of grape juice. An argument over that it has to be grape juice, right? There was a major conflict when the youth, Caleb, you can pay attention to this, the youth bought a crock pot that hadn't been used for years. Hadn't been touched for years. There was an argument in a business meeting over that. Silly, right? An argument over whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the next church meal. <laughs> Evidently, somebody made some deviled eggs, and you can't eat those at church. So think about that next week at Thanksgiving, okay? An argument over whether or not to have gluten-free communion bread. All right? Hey, if you're gluten-free, I get it. And this is another one. Jerry will appreciate this. A big argument over the discovery that the church budget was off by 10 cents. Finally, somebody gave a dime in order to settle the argument and end it. Boy, we can disagree over silly things, can't we? And that's just a few. And I've heard some doozies in my day. I've experienced a few of them. A lack of unity. Where does that stem from? Well, our focus is off. When there's not unity in my life, with my relationship with God, then I'm not going to be united with other people. And the, the, the best fix for that is to be humbled by the presence and the glory of God and to realize that, hey, I'm not perfect. Nobody else is perfect. And if we are focused on experiencing the glory of God, we won't be concerned with trivial things. We will be concerned with more of his glory experiencing him obeying him will be focused on christ and the result is we will be drawn to get we will be drawn together as his people and god will lift us up james 4 10 says humble yourselves before the lord and he will exalt you don't try to achieve greatness humble yourself before god and he'll exalt you in his way in his manner look at Exodus 34, 29 as well. We get back to Moses. Moses descended as he descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. He descended the mountain. He did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. You know, one of the great things about this, Moses was the only person that didn't realize his face was glowing. You know, if you think you've arrived spiritually, then you, you, you probably haven't. If you, if you think that, that you're as holy as you should be, as spiritual as you should be, holier than, than other people, then you probably haven't. It's those people who aren't concerned with their own holiness, but are concerned with pursuing the holiness of God, who are in full pursuit 
of God's holiness, his glory, his greatness. It's the one who think the ones who think they are nothing who actually become spiritual giants. Look at where Moses started. I can't do this. I can't speak. And, Mo, and God's saying, yeah, I know that, but I can make you who I want you to be. I can turn you into who I want you to be. And as a result, he becomes a spiritual giant, not because of him, but because of what God did in and through him. And Moses also worshiped God. That's another thing his encounter produced was true worship. When Moses saw God as he really was, he bowed down in worship, Scripture tells us. And your worship, as the best way I've heard it described, is it's the full attention of my mind and the full affection of my heart. And that can be done through singing, that can be done through prayer, it can be done through preaching, but those things in and of themselves aren't worship. It is a matter of the heart. Those are, those are tools we use to express our worship, our gratitude, our affection, our appreciation for God, to express our praise of who he is as God. Genuine worship is a matter of the heart. And when we genuinely worship God, we want to not exalt ourselves. We want to lift him up above all else. In our service, yes, but in our lives, we want his glory to be exalted. We've experienced his glory. Now we want that to, our lives to reflect his glory. Just like Moses' face was a reflection of the glory of God, we want that to be true of our lives. We want other people to see him in and through us. When, when we experience a deepening worship of God and experience of God on a private and corporate level, what happens is we want others to experience the same thing. And, and when we experience the glory of God and humble ourselves before God, we experience worship as it's meant to be, true worship. God is spirit, John 4, 24, Jesus says, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We need to be hungry for an encounter with God that produces true spiritual worship. Moses' counter also encounter also experienced an outward change. You know, his, his, his face shone, and it appears that that was always the case until the day he died. He would go into the presence of God. He would take the veil off, but then he would come down to the people, and he'd have to cover his face again because they couldn't handle it. He was never the same. Moses was a living testimony to the nation of Israel, to anybody that saw him. He was a living testimony to the glory of God. And the same thing can happen to us in our lives. If we truly encounter God, if we have a deepening relationship with him, if we're growing, if we're obedient, if we're faithful, we will reflect the glory of God. And then finally, Moses' encounter produced a special relationship with God. In verses 34 and 35, it talks about him going into the presence of God, and he could, he could remove the veil. He would remove the veil and experience God, have relationship with God, and then he would go down and he would cover his face in front of the people. There was a closeness between God and Moses, a relationship that developed. They spent time together, and you and I can do the same thing. We don't have to go into the Holy of Holies. We don't have to go through somebody else. We go through Christ, but because of him, we can have a personal relationship where he speaks to us through his word, through the Holy Spirit. We experience him. We encounter him. Anytime we want, we can talk to him. We can experience the glory of God through Jesus Christ. And he will allow you, he will have an impact on your life, and he will allow you to have an impact for his kingdom. That's his grace. That's his mercy. The book of Exodus, when we close out this book, it closes with the glory of God. 
The book of Exodus closes with the glory of God. The tabernacle is built in chapters 35 through 40. The Lord dwells with his people, and the people of God receive the glory of God. As New Testament believers, we're told we receive an even greater glory. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 8 and verse 18. Now the ministry of death, chiseled in letters on stones, came with glory so that the Israelites were not able to look directly at Moses' face because of the glory from his face, a fading glory. How will the ministry of the Spirit be more glorious? Now look at verse 18. We all with unveiled faces. Remember, Moses is in the presence of God. He got to take the veil off. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is spirit. Not only do we see the glory of God in Jesus, we are becoming the glory of God in Jesus. We are being transformed. Now, you think about where we started. We started in sin. And I want to show you what, what this looks like. This is what's called the process of sanctification. We are justified before God when we come to Christ. We are saved of our sins. We are, have right standing before God, but we still have a lot that God is going to do to make us more like him. It's a lifelong process of sanctification. It's restoration. But in that process, the glory of God is restored. When we were created, when man was created, we were a perfect image of God. Sin disrupted that. Now that sanctification process, God is restoring that glory. So like this spring, man was once perfect as, it, as he was supposed to be, but sin messed that up. I mean, we're stretched, we're twisted, we're even torn by sin. So something has to happen in order for us to be restored. And what God does, he saves us, and then the Holy Spirit is described as fire, right? God's Holy Spirit comes within us, and he begins to refine us. He begins to restore us. And what happens is he works on us each day, little by little. And that refining fire of the Holy Spirit, slowly but surely, restores us. Day by day, as we spend time in his word, as we obey him, as we listen to his voice, as we grow, he works in and through us, and he refines us. And one of these days, we will once again be perfect as we were intended to be. That's what God does for you and me. Are you desperate for his presence, his glory in your life? That's the requirement, is to be desperate, to seek him. But he's not going to force himself on you. He's not going to force his way into your life. But he's there. He's willing. He's gracious. He's merciful. And if you will come to him, if you will draw near to him, he will draw near to you. So how desperate are you for God's glory? Moses' life was changed forever that day. Forever. He would never be the same. He kept going back for more and more and more. And he kept experiencing God more and more, growing in his relationship with him more and more and more. He was renewed that day. And each time he went into the presence of God, and you and I, this is what we need in our lives, in our church. You know, we talk a lot and we pray a lot about what we need right now is for the pandemic to be gone. And I want it gone too. 
But what we need more than that is the glory of God in our lives. The ever-increasing glory of God in and through us. And that begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. We experience God's glory through Christ. As we enter this time of decision, I just ask, have you experienced the glory of God through Jesus Christ? And if so, if you are a child of his, what are you doing to put yourself in a position each day to experience the glory of God through Bible study, prayer, fellowship with him, obedience? And if there's something that you're not doing, if you're not experiencing God's glory, there's a reason. What do you need to do to experience? How do I need to put myself in a position each day to experience his glory? Let's go before the Lord and ask him about that. Father, we come before you today recognizing our desperate need for your presence and glory in our lives. We cannot survive. We cannot make it in this world without you. And we certainly cannot make it into eternity without you. And God, we know that you have made your glory available through your son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, through your death on the cross, you offer payment for our sins. You have paid the price. If we will accept the gift of salvation, our sins can be forgiven, cleansed. We can have that right standing before you. We have to believe that you died for our sins and invite you into our lives to take over, complete control. And then you begin that process of sanctification where you make us more like yourself each day. You refine us. You mold us. You shape us. And it's a process of restoration. But we have to put ourselves in a position to receive that, to experience your glory. You're working in our lives. We have to spend time with you each day in prayer and in study of your word. We have to obey you, do the things you tell us to do. We have to have communion with you through the day, relationship with you that grows and increases just as your relationship with Moses increased each time he came into your presence. Our relationship with you needs to grow each day. And Lord, if we are not experiencing your glory, if there's somebody here at home who is not experiencing your glory, it's, it's one of two things. It's either they don't know you as Savior and they can cry out to you right now where they are and and, and Jesus asks you into their lives, ask for forgiveness of sin that you have offered, you are offering. And, or Lord, it's that they're saved and they're not put, putting themselves in a position to experience, to receive your glory through disobedience, through lack of spiritual discipline, through not surrounding themselves with people that will encourage them and help them to grow. Whatever it is, Father, I pray that we would, we would make the adjustments. We would put ourselves in a position because I know that if we experience your glory, we will be desperate for more. No one will have to tell us to seek more. We will be desperate for it. And it'll be all over our faces. Everywhere we go, what we say, what we do, how we live, we will reflect your glory. And that is the desire for my life, I have for my life, for my family, and for this church. May we experience and reflect your glory in all that we do. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.